Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How can Jesus be the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament? Didn't the Old Testament in Ezekiel 37 say the Messiah was going to build the third temple? Didn't uh, the Old Testament in Isaiah 43 say the Messiah would gather all the Jews back in the land of Israel? Uh, Didn't Isaiah also say that the Messiah is going to usher in an area of world peace and end all hatred, oppression, suffering, and disease? Uh, Wasn't the Messiah going to spread the universal knowledge of God of Israel? Aren't the verses that the New Testament uh, talks about with regard to Old Testament prophecies, don't those verses, don't those New Testament writers take the Old Testament prophecies out of context? Aren't the Old Testament references to, to the Messiah vague so you really, I mean, you, you could try and apply them to Jesus, but do they really apply to Jesus? And what about the great suffering servant passage, Isaiah chapter 53? Isn't the suffering servant Israel? It says it several times in the Old Testament that the servant is Israel. So why do Christians say that the servant is, uh, in, in Isaiah 53, is Jesus? These are all questions that you're going to get if you try and tell an Orthodox Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to come back and bring objections like this up. And there's no better man on the planet to talk about this than my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. You guys know Dr. Brown. He's been on this program several times. He has a fabulous ministry. AskDrBrown.org. He's on the radio every day. He's sometimes here on the American Family Radio Network. He has his PhD in Semitic Languages from New York University. He is an evangelical believer who uh, has written on so many different topics, including this topic. He has five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Uh, He's written on uh, the issue of uh, the LGBT community, as you know. He's written Can You Be Gay and Christian? Uh, He's written several fabulous books. We've talked about them on the program before, and it's always great to have my friend Dr. Brown on. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Frank. And and hearing those objections, yeah, I've been hearing them for 46 years. (laughs) Now, you were brought up in a Jewish home, and give, give our listeners a minute or two testimony on how you became a Christian. Yes, well, I was not raised in a religious Jewish home. In other words, I didn't get up in the morning and pray every day, go to synagogue every Shabbat, and carefully observe the Sabbath. But growing up in a conservative Jewish home, it's not conservative politically, that's just the the denomination in Judaism. We're Jewish enough to know, well, we don't believe in Jesus. It's like a nominal Christian knows we don't believe in Muhammad. So I I didn't believe in Jesus. I was born mitzvah at 13. But the bigger event for me when I was 13, the, the spiritual event for me was not the bar mitzvah. That was more of a social event. The bigger event was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert. <laughs> and I was playing drums already at that point. And, man, seeing Hendrix, 13 years old, just wanted to be like the rock stars. I got so caught up in that whole culture. I started using drugs at the age of 14 and somehow had a very high capacity for doing drugs. Uh, ended up shooting heroin at 15 and 
being known as Drug Bear and Iron Man because I, I used such massive quantities of drugs and survived. And age of 16, very proud, rebel, a good drummer for that age, and just wanted to be a rock star, you know, dreaming of stupid dreams. Uh, my two best friends started going to a little gospel church because they liked two girls who were going there. God started working in their hearts and changing them. I went to pull them out in August of 71. The folks there really began to pray for me, and the Holy Spirit began to chase me down and convict me of my sin. And I, I became overwhelmingly aware of the ugliness of my life and became aware that Jesus really died for me and rose from the dead, that this was true. And at this point, no one was showing me Messianic prophecies or going through the scriptures with me, because I was really just, just a heathen in, in that regard. But when the Lord became real in my life, I, I had a, an overnight turnaround. Uh, all the drugs went out. I started serving the Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then my dad said, well, Michael, that's great that you believe this, but, but uh, you're off drugs. That's wonderful, but we're Jews. Mm. Jews don't believe these things. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi, and that began my dialogue with the Jewish community. I mean, literally a matter of weeks after I was a born-again believer, with very, very little knowledge of anything, that's the first time that I met the local rabbi. And we're still friends to this day. He's in his 70s now. We still interact. But uh, bottom line is, uh, the moment you come to faith as a Jewish person, it's very common that you'll, you'll be hit with these objections. And now, because they're everywhere on the Internet, it's hard not to get hit with them if you're a Jewish follower of Jesus. And you have done an amazing amount of work answering these objections. In fact, you have five volumes answering Jewish objections to Jesus. I think the volume number three deals with the Messianic prophecies. And you've also put together a website that people can go to. It's called realmessiah.com realmessiah.com. Just about every objection we're going to talk about on this program, you can get further information on by going to realmessiah.com. And then, of course, you can get Dr. Brown's books. And then you can go to his website, askdrbrown.org for more on that. He also has a Line of Fire program every day. Uh, what's the website for that? Is it lineoffire.com? Yeah, Mike, if, what if is they it? go to askdrbrown.org, it links to everything. It links, it to, links to everything. Our, okay. All right. Yeah, articles yeah. and things, but the one, the Jewish focus is realmessiah.com, but it's also, if you go to askdrbrown.org, just click on Jewish, it'll get into the same place. So check him out. You can also see him quite frequently. He writes several columns a week. Uh, go over to stream.org for those. Stream.org, run by our friends James Robinson and Jay Richards. Uh, Mike always has some great insights on the issues of the day, so uh, Dr. Brown is on top of things for you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, so you can, uh, you can relax a little bit and just take all that in. And in fact, uh, this topic on Jewish objections, we might as well get right into them, Mike. Let's just start with the one I brought up first, and that is the objection that you hear from uh, Jewish folks who say, look, the Messiah didn't build the third temple. Uh, if, if he's Jesus, right, where, where's the third temple? What do you say to that? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting one, uh, because there's one explicit reference in the Old Testament to the Messiah and the Temple, which is Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. Now, we know that the traditional Jewish hope is looking forward to what many Christians would call the, the Millennial Kingdom, of the Messiah ruling and reigning over the earth in a time of the universal knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And those passages, for example, Isaiah 2, talk about the mountain of the house of the Lord being raised up above all other mountains. So the house of the Lord is, is pictured there in a prominent way, the future Temple, Zechariah 6, speaking of a man called the Branch, whom we understand to be Messiah, it says three times he'll build 
the temple of the Lord. And based on that, a traditional Judaism, now it doesn't say this for about a thousand years. You don't get this until the time of Maimonides in, in the uh, 12th century. But he makes this one of the ways that you'll recognize the Messiah, that he will build the temple of the Lord. Now, one thing I say to people is, well, it's possible when the Messiah returns, if there's an earthly temple, then yeah, he'll, he'll build a temple. You know, that's, I don't have an argument with that. But the, the, the whole objection breaks down when you realize, number one, when the prophecy was given in Zechariah, the sixth chapter, it was with reference to the second temple, which was being built at that point. Ah. That's why there's some rabbinic interpreters that question whether the prophecy is even messianic. So that, that's the first problem with it. There are also rabbinic traditions that the temple will just come down from, from heaven, a future temple. And, and then we know that there was messianic expectation that the Messiah could be coming while the second temple was standing. So this idea that it is a requirement of the Messiah to build the temple, and unless he builds the temple, he can't be the Messiah, is, is not something that was taught uh, in the ancient Jewish world from what we can see in literature. It wasn't really codified as a way of thinking until about a thousand years after the time of Jesus. It wasn't necessarily codified against Jesus, but it was, it was well, look at all these prophecies about a temple that he'll build, that this is one of the requirements, but it certainly was not the way Jews were thinking in, in the first century when Jesus came. We're talking to Dr. Michael Brown, and uh, he is literally the best man on the planet to talk about this topic, Messianic prophecies, and folks on the other side of this issue will say, hey, Jesus doesn't fulfill these prophecies. Dr. Brown is saying he is, or you're misinterpreting the prophecy to begin with, and we got three more segments with Dr. Brown. You don't want to go away. Check out the website, realmessiah.com. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're not going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about messianic prophecies. As you know, there are many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Christians, of course, believe these point to Jesus. But when we say that, Jewish uh, folks are going to say, wait a minute, you've got some issues here because... Jesus didn't build the temple, as the Bible seems to indicate. Dr. Brown just answered that one. Let's go to another one, Dr. Brown. Uh, And it's the assertion that, according to Isaiah 43, the Messiah is going to gather all the Jews back to the land of Israel, and Jesus didn't do that. What do you say about that? Well, first thing we emphasize, that it's clear in Scripture that the Messiah has a twofold mission, that the Messiah is to be a priest and a king. Yes, he's always the king of the Jews, but he's a priestly king. Zechariah 6 that we looked at makes it explicit that the man who typifies the branch is the high priest Joshua, and that David, it's it's written of him and or the Messiah in Psalm 110, that he'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we have other passages that indicate the Messiah will first suffer for our sins before he rules and reigns. So there are two aspects to his work. The Talmud, rabbinic literature, uh, written several hundred years after the time of Jesus, asked the question, will the Messiah come riding on a donkey, as per Zechariah 9, or will he come riding in the clouds, as per Daniel 7? Mm. And the answer is both. The Talmud says, well, if we're unworthy, he'll come on a donkey. If we're worthy, he'll come on the clouds of heaven. But the Bible says both. So first he comes riding on a donkey. 
to die for our sins, to make atonement for us as our great high priest in accordance with a number of other passages. At the end of the age, he'll return in the clouds of heaven. And at that point, he'll accomplish some of the other aspects of the messianic mission, such as establishing universal peace on the earth, such as uh, regathering the exiles that are still scattered around the world. So the Messiah will yet do that. I would liken it to, to this. I tell you, listen, Frank, I really believe in your new business, and I want to invest $1 million in your business. Here's the first deposit of 500000 and I'll be back in a while once I see how the business is growing to give you that second 500000 And then I do that, and some years go by, you're still waiting for me. Well, another guy told you he's going to invest a $1 million in your company, but he's never even given you a deposit. Who do you trust? Well, you trust the guy that's giving you the deposit. I'm going to come and finish what I started. So that's how it is. The Messiah came to begin the mission when he had to, before the Second Temple was destroyed, to deal with our sins as our great high priest. He's the only one who can now fulfill the rest. And when he does return, all of the prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet will be fulfilled. That's a great analogy. But what if a Jewish person says, where does it say in the Old Testament he's coming back twice? Yeah, so here's what we do have. We have two distinct descriptions of his mission, one suffering and dying, another ruling and reigning. You find them, for example, just in the space of of two or three verses in Isaiah, the 52nd chapter, beginning in verse 13, that he'll be highly exalted, extremely high, and yet he'll suffer horrifically. So first the suffering, then the exaltation. We have that. You have the picture of him riding on a donkey, coming in the clouds of heaven. You can't do both at the same time. And then we have from Haggai 2, Daniel 9, and Malachi 3, we can see that the Messiah had to come and complete the first part of his mission before the second temple was destroyed, which took place in the year 70, almost Mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago. So unless that was the end of it, and he's not coming to, to fulfill his mission, or the Messiah will never come because he didn't come to accomplish the first part of his mission, there's only one solution, that there are two phases to his work, that there's a first coming and a second coming. We have a timetable for it, that he had to do this priestly work before the second temple was destroyed. He's the only possible candidate. Hmm. Yeah, the, it does say in Malachi 3, I believe, if I'm thinking about that rightly, I think you just mentioned that, that the Lord you seek will suddenly come to the temple and obviously that had to be prior to 70 AD, unless a Jewish person were to say he's going to come back for the third temple, but that same Jewish person is saying that he's going to build the temple. So what would you say to somebody who said, well, it could be the third temple, Dr. Brown? Yeah, and there, there is actually a, a Jewish polemic that says that, that, you know, it, it could be, a th- or for example, with Haggai 2, the mm-hmm. glory of this house will be uh, greater than the uh, of the, the glory of the, you know, the glory of the latter house, greater glory than the, the first house. I, I would say this: number one, the Jewish person who does that is is being guilty of the very thing they accuse us of, namely of reading something into the Scripture that is not there. Because Malachi, when he's prophesying, he's talking about corruption among the Levites in his day. He's talking about sin in the temple, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It would be an odd thing. You know, if we're talking about, yeah, there's a lot of corruption in America, 
and and I said, listen, man, God's going to come and judge this nation, but it doesn't actually mean now. It means another America that's going to exist in another part of the world in 2,000 years. He said, obviously not. So that breaks down. Daniel 9 makes clear that their prophecies regarding the Second Temple, it's pretty well universally understood those prophecies had to come to pass before the Second Temple was destroyed, and there an anointed one is cut off, and it does tell us there that uh, atonement is made and everlasting righteousness is ushered in. And then Haggai 2, as they're, as they're dedicating the Second Temple, and it's nowhere like the First Temple, God says the glory of, this, of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. It doesn't give three. It's former and latter. It's first and second. So, again, it can only be speaking of the second temple. And it's a great point you make. If the Messiah has to build the temple to be the Messiah, how can he visit the temple? <laughs> Let me ask you this, too. Going back to Malachi 3, where it says, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to your temple. Is that, and, and we're talking to Dr. Michael Brown, who has a PhD in Semitic languages. He knows all the ancient languages, so he can, he can deal with this. Is that passage there, when it says the Lord, is that referring to God, or is that just uh, referring to someone who it might be an exalted person, but not God? It, there's the slight possibility that you could argue it's speaking of an exalted person. However, if we just base it on Hebrew usage, the Hebrew is Ha-Adon. Now, if, if it used the, the personal name Yahweh, that would be one thing. This is Ha-Adon, but Ha-Adon is literally the Lord. And and there is nowhere else in the Bible where Ha-Adon, the Lord, is used for anyone other than God himself. So it's a very, very strong statement, in fact. Okay, now some of the missionaries, uh, the counter-missionaries we call you call them counter-missionaries? Is that what you call them? The folks that yes. are... Okay, the folks that are Jewish folks who are saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, and, and they're very vocal about that. Uh, if I've seen them say, I think that the Messiah is not supposed to be God. Is that true, or is the Messiah supposed to be God? No, in traditional Jewish thought, the Messiah is absolutely not God. Not in, God. Okay. Not God. In traditional so, Jewish thought, that's one of the biggest issues that they, would, that they would raise against us, that we're making God into a man or a man into God. They would see it as no different than some Hindu incarnation that, you know, Hindus believe that, you know, this person is the latest incarnation of Krishna. That's the, probably the number one stumbling block for a Jew to believe in Jesus. So we have to open up the scriptures from a totally different angle in that regard. Okay, so if that's the case, if they're saying the Messiah is not God, when they look at Malachi 3 and the Lord, which appears to be a reference to God, comes to the temple, how do they deal with that? Yeah, e either they would look at it metaphorically, you know, that God will visit, or God will visit in the, in the, in the person of an angelic messenger, or God will visit in the, you know, it, through an Elijah-type person or through the Messiah, or they would, they would downplay the meeting of Ha'adon there. Uh, but it's an interesting passage, though, because when you look at rabbinic exegesis of the passage, which is, you know, rabbinic exegesis is, is brilliant and tremendous insights in many ways, but, but it's not exactly clear as to who is who. There's some ambiguity there, and, and I wonder sometimes if the ambiguity is not because the text is not clear, but because the text is saying something that we have a hard time with. <clears throat> yeah, that, <laughs> that might be the case uh, instead, as you put it. All right, so we've established that there are two comings, then, of this Messiah. And why do we say, then, 
that the Messiah is God, and they're saying the Messiah is not God. Like, for example, what do they do with Isaiah chapter 9, Dr. Brown, where it seems to say that a child is born and the child will be called mighty God? How do they deal with that one? Yes, that's, that, you would say, is the most straightforward declaration. Uh, the first thing we have to deal with in context is what's it saying. In other words, in, in context, is it talking about a child that was going to be born in Isaiah's day, in which case, who was that child? Right. The best answer would be that there could have been expectation that would be Hezekiah or something like that. But then you say, okay, well, were they thinking that he was going to be divine? So there are different ways that rabbinic Judaism deals with this. One way is in a very convoluted translation in the Targum. That's the Aramaic translation slash paraphrase that was used in the synagogues when uh, Hebrew was not spoken anymore. And there it changes the whole syntax. It's, it's really clearly not what the text says. But the way it reads, it takes all the epithets about that he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It takes all those and it puts them on God. The one who was Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father will call his name Prince of Peace. So it, it is syntactically just a completely unlikely reading. And then we have nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. When the focus is on the giving of the name, you don't heap up all the epithets on the one giving the name. So that breaks down. Uh, an, another attempt is to say, well, El Gibor, Mighty God, is spoken with reference to Hezekiah. You find that in the Talmud, you find that in the famous commentary of Ibn Ezra. And what they try to do is downplay the meaning of mighty God, to say it just means kind of like a powerful warrior or something like that. And I would say they're on to something, that as, as the prophecy was given, because what would happen with Messianic prophecy, you think it's right here, it's right at the door, just like Christians think Jesus could be coming any moment, and they think that in each generation. So when, when the, the new king would be born to the line of Judah, or the new king would be in, in, in set on the throne, You'd have a coronation psalm, you'd proclaim all these great things about him, and then he wouldn't realize them. You, okay, he was far from all the things we just spoke of him, and the messianic expectations, you know, the great expectations we had. And then once the temple's destroyed, once you have no Davidic king, then you begin to think, well, who is this one? You, you look at the scriptures again. So probably as given, the words were startling and jolting, and what kind of child is this going to be? But it's only once you realize the, the words are literally intended, then you realize, yeah, the Messiah actually has to be the Word incarnate. The Messiah himself is mighty God. And it would make sense because God alone is the Savior. He emphasizes that in Scripture. He alone is the Savior. He alone gets glory. And yet what he does to the Messiah is so glorious that it must be a divine act. Dr. Michael Brown, fascinating. And we got two more segments with him. You don't want to miss it. Is Jesus the Messiah? What about people who say he's not because of all these objections? We're going to cover more of them. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. We're back in two. Is Jesus really the Messiah? What about these objections? That Orthodox Jews bring up to say he's not the Messiah. We're dealing with many of those objections today here on the broadcast with my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. If you want more details on the objections we're covering than what we can cover in a radio broadcast or a podcast, go to realmessiah.com. That's realmessiah.com. You'll see uh, scores of answers, video answers, written answers by Dr. Brown on these topics 
And then you can get his book if you want to go even deeper, Jewish or Answering Jewish Objections to the Messiah. Volume three would be the one we're talking about today, but you can get all five volumes. Uh, so check that out. Check that book out and check out realmessiah.com. Before we go back to Dr. Brown, I want to point out that uh, the next course that uh, is offered through or you can access through crossexamine.org, the online course, is by uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg. I just did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Historical Reliability of the New Testament Doctor, or actually Historical Reliability of the Gospels, I should say. And that course begins January 30th. If you want to be a part of that course, you can sign up up to that date and even after that date. But if you really want to be a part of the premium course where you could go online and, and get questions answered directly by Dr. Uh, Blomberg live on on Zoom video, you're going to want to sign up for that quickly. We want to keep the, uh, the, the premium course small so you have an opportunity to ask him questions. Uh, so check that out. There's many other courses coming down the road, but uh, that's the next one up. And uh, we've already got over 100 people in the Stealing from God course. Uh, about 35 or so in the premium version of it. Uh, so these courses, people are finding very helpful. And what other place can you go and actually ask the author of the uh, book questions live? Uh, you can only do it uh, through these courses. So check out crossexamine.org. Click on uh, resources. You'll see online courses there. Back to my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. And uh, we're dealing with these objections to the Messiah and uh, if you would, Mike, just go back again to Isaiah chapter 9 for just a minute, just to kind of uh, wrap that whole thing up. You're saying that when they try and downgrade that the child would be God, they really, um, they, they're really cl uh, clutching for straws here. They don't really have any way of downgrading that. And you're saying it's in the Targum. Uh, explain what that is again, and, and why aren't they just going to the to the Old Testament itself to do that? Okay, so uh, in in the ancient synagogues, and to this day, the five books of Moses are read on a weekly basis in the synagogue, and then a portion of the uh, the prophets, other parts of the Bible, are read as well. So this is to this day in, in synagogues, and they're chanted in Hebrew. Well, over a period of time, as Jews were scattered in different parts of the world. Uh, and, and even some Jews that could have lived in different parts of ancient Israel at the time of Jesus may not have spoken Hebrew. So the tar Targum just means translation. Mm. So, for example, you'd read two verses, say, in English, in, in Hebrew, and then two verses would be translated into Aramaic. So you, you'd start in Genesis 1-1, where for Elohim et et it's Hebrew. And then the, the Aramaic, Bekad mean Barad and Ara, that's the Aramaic. And that's how it would be done. And this was done orally. And then over a period of time, these were written down. And these became very important in Jewish thought because they were ancient. And, and they would, would expand on the text or interpret some of them more straight translation, but others more of a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. and, and this would be a way that you could understand what ancient Jews believed about the text. In fact, we even see some language of the Targum, which is reflected in New Testament teaching. In other words, Jesus may be referring some, to something or quoting a verse uh, from Isaiah, and you realize, wow, he's quoting it the way they would have understood it in the synagogue, in the Targum. These were common Jewish traditions of the day. So when a, when a religious Jew is studying scripture, uh, they'll have the Hebrew Bible, and then next to that they'll have the Aramaic Targum, 
and then uh, and then all around the rest of the page they'll have the rabbinic interpreters. When a traditional Jew studies scripture, that's how they study. They don't just read the Bible; they read it with the targum and they read it with uh, the commentaries. And the idea is that the closer you can get back to the early sources, the more reliable and accurate it would be. It'd be kind of like for a Catholic looking at what the early church fathers had to say, that that would carry tremendous authority very close to Scripture for them. So that's how it is for a traditional Jew. So the Targum, obviously recognizing the difficulty here, uh, just re-renders the verse. Let's say this, it's not impossible Mm-hmm. But you'd never come up with this a hundred times reading the text on your own, that namely, the one who is mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, gives this son, this new child, the name Prince of Peace. So all the other names are put on God, and instead this Prince of Peace is given to the child. That indicates to you that the verse, in its plain sense, presented a bit of a problem to the Targum. Now, one other argument could be raised, Frank, and that's, well, look, you have names like Eliyahu, you know, my God is Yahweh, or, or you know, many other names that have divine elements in it, and it's not talking about the person, it's talking about God. So these, these are just epithets of God being heaped on the child, but then why is the child being called these things? Right. I mean, all the interpreters agree that the child is called Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Why? Because this is prophesied that he would rule and reign with peace, that there would be a, a great reign from this king. So that's understood. So if that's about the son, then isn't El Gibor, mighty God, about this son as well? And mm. you could try to say, well, El Gibor, maybe El, normally means God, but maybe it just means mighty, you know, El Gibor, some kind of a mighty warrior. The problem is that in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, the very next chapter, Yahweh himself is called El Gibor, mighty mm. God. Mm. So it's one of those things that I, I believe, as it was given, was given with wonder and awe without a full understanding of the Incarnation, and that it is then over the period of time as the Messiah comes into the world that you realize that, that this was actually a divine Incarnation. Some things so transcend our understanding that we don't get them when we hear them, and then as they unfold, you think, oh, it, you really meant what you said. You, actually, you said what you meant, you meant what you said. Now, Mike, prior to the coming of Christ, was that passage seen as uh, we would take it today, that a child would be born who is God? Because they're saying that the Messiah is not God. Was, was it just after Christ that they began to, to apply these these uh, descriptions to God rather than the child? I mean, what, when did this shift occur? Well, we, we don't... The earliest source we have on this is the Targum, and it's impossible to, to date exactly okay. where that comes from. In other words, was this extant in Jesus' day or not? Right. Uh, there's no commentary on it in the Dead Sea Scrolls that would give us an indication. But uh, this much we can see. Remember, Jesus told his disciples flat out, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they didn't understand what he was saying, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he, he repeatedly told them, I'm going, to, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. Like, what do you mean? And what do you mean rise? And that, what do you, they didn't get it. So even though God said it plainly, it was not clear to them. I believe this is one of those passages that would be the same thing, that, yeah, looking at it in the light of the Incarnation, yeah, very clear. Looking at it leading up to the incarnation, 
you might think, wow, what a wonderful prophecy, or what an exalted prophecy, or is God going to somehow especially associate it with this child? The fullness of the incarnation, the reality of that, I think that's one of those things you look back and say, wow, there it is, clearly written and clearly taught. Because mm-hmm. elsewhere, you know, for example, if you look about the Messiah in Isaiah 11, that the Messiah walks in the fear of the Lord. You should say, look, he's just a man. He walks in the fear of the Lord. Right. And, and if he's born, he's obviously a man. He's not God. So uh, we may be very used to the concept of the Incarnation, but it's one of the most mind-blowing events, maybe the most mind-blowing that's ever happened in human history. Yes. You can understand it may take someone a little time to wrap their mind around this. Right. I want to save the t- discussion on Isaiah 53 for the last segment here, because I, I, I don't want to be interrupted by the break, but I, I want to deal with one other objection before we we go to the break, Mike, and that is uh, frequently the uh, counter-missionaries will say, well, you know, you're taking, the New Testament takes Old Testament references out of context. Let's just say Isaiah uh, 7.14 about uh, a virgin. You know, Matthew says he applies that to Jesus, but in the Old Testament it wasn't that way. It applied to, a, say, a young woman, not necessarily a virgin. How do you How do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, when I first came to faith, this is one of the battles we fought endlessly, and I would get every dictionary I could and try to see Almas, and I prove it means virgin, uh-huh. etc. So let's understand this. In context, it's definitely speaking about something in Isaiah's day, in, in, in Ahaz's day, because they're, they're being attacked by foreign nations. There's a direct uh, assault on the throne of David. Uh, the house of David is being spoken to here, not just the king, but the house of David. And there's a prophecy that's definitely relevant for that time. And you could just say, in short, it's a prophecy about a, a, a young woman, perhaps too young to have a child, but a young woman and a birth of supernatural importance. That, okay. that God says, you, know, you ask for a sign, I'll, I'll give you, a, you know, an even greater sign if you're not going to ask. And, and somehow this child... It's going to be called Immanuel, which either means God is with us or God with us. But then immediately after, there's a judgment passage. Now, in context, it, you could say it was a prophecy about uh, the line of David for that day. But Matthew understands that there were many prophecies given to the line of David, and many of them did not come to pass in full. Something happened, but not in full. I believe a consistent hermeneutic is this. Any unfulfilled promises given about about the line of David, about the king to come through the line of David, if they weren't fulfilled in David's day and Solomon's day, they are yet to be fulfilled. If God said you will rule and reign from coast to coast, and that didn't happen, it's yet to be fulfilled. Psalm 2, where God says, ask me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. That has not yet happened. It never happened through David. It never happened through Solomon. It is happening through Jesus. So Matthew sees, wait, Isaiah 7, talking about a supernatural birth uh, of, uh, of a significant king in the line of David uh, to, to a woman who is a virgin. Wait a, wait a second, whether the Hebrew exactly said virgin or that's not the issue. What he sees is this, this has never been fulfilled. Whatever happened then did not live up to its fullness. He then keeps reading and he sees Isaiah 9, talks about the birth of the Messianic king who is God himself. And then Isaiah 11 talks about the rule and reign of this king over the whole earth. There's no question Matthew had that whole section involved. Mm. And he says, wait, here's a, I ask you a question. You just have learned that the Messiah was born 
of a virgin supernaturally. You go back and read Isaiah 7, which speaks of the supernatural birth of, 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 a, of a messianic king or someone of the line of David who will be called God is with us or God with us, and he's born of an Alma, uh, a woman who's perhaps too young to have a child. You're not going to say that's a fulfillment? Dude, that's not going to jump off the page right, at you? Right, right. There's a lot more on realmessiah.com and, of course, Dr. Brown's book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 3. you got to get it. And we're going to talk about Isaiah 53, maybe the most, uh, maybe the clearest Old Testament prophecy right after the break, so don't go away. We're back in two. Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest, Dr. Michael Brown. You can find him in many places, askdrbrown.org. That's his main website, but the topic we're talking about today is realmessiah.com. He's also put that website up, and he's answered scores of objections on there, both through video and also through the short, uh, or or he's actually got the, the short videos, but then he's got the, the written uh, version of what he says in the video. So this is a great resource, realmessiah.com. Go there and uh, get more details on what we're talking about here and also get some details on, uh, or further details in his book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, particularly volume three, but all five volumes are worth having, obviously. And I also want to mention too, we're going to be, uh, as I mentioned earlier, starting a new course with Dr. Craig Blomberg uh, that's going to be uh, online and you'll be able to answer or get questions answered, I should say, by Dr. Blomberg live. And it's uh, the historical reliability of the gospel. So you want to be a part of that as well. And, and uh, Dr. Brown, you know Craig Blomberg or you know some of the people we're having on these, uh, on these courses, oh, yeah. don't I mean, you? He's, uh, he, he's, he's terrific. When I've done some classes at Denver Theological Seminary, um, some other places where I've intersected with him, yeah, he's he's a first-class uh, New Testament scholar. I've used his book on the historical historical liability of the Gospels for many years. And you know, Frank, I, I just want to underscore to your listeners what you are doing is is really really significant because you're making things accessible where folks would only have to travel to a seminary, pay large amounts of money. And then the class wouldn't be at a level they could probably understand. So uh, all your listeners, take advantage of this. This this is stuff that was not available years ago. And the way you're putting it out and then the time for live interaction is, is terrific. You know, Frank, when you, when you say I'm the best man on the planet to talk to you about these things, you know, that's been the case for years because there was no one on the planet to talk to you. And when, when I came to faith, <laughs> And the rabbis challenged me. I mean, these were sincere men and learned men, and I just come up with my standard little Christian answers, and they demolished them. Uh-huh. So I'd go, I talked to Jews for Jesus, and they were great guys, great evangelists, but they, they didn't have scholars at that point. And and I try to find books, and there was just nothing there. And that's why I ended up writing the five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, because it, it had just never been done before, and there was a crying need for it. Now. People are building on it, expanding, and you know, improving work and stuff. So the, the fact that things like this are accessible, and then on our Real Messiah website, we've got the, really the work of decades free for folks to take advantage of. So we, we encourage them, dive in, take advantage. Oh, people definitely need to go to that website, and you need to get those books because they're the, they're the best books out there on this topic. Even if you don't have a Jewish person questioning you, you just need to know this. Uh, just just because it's not only affirming uh, to our own faith that uh, Christ is the Messiah, 
uh, but it will equip you to deal with objections that do come up. Now, we got to get to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, Dr. Brown, because that might be the clearest, in my opinion anyway, um, a prophecy of Jesus and the Messiah. Not to downplay the others, but this is so uh, clear, and it seems to be unmistakably pointing to Jesus. However, uh, the counter-missionaries, Jewish, serious Jewish scholars, will say, well, hold on, Dr. Brown. No, 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 no. Isaiah states no less than 11 times that the servant of God is Israel. And he states that in several places prior to Isaiah chapter 53. What do you say about that? Yeah, actually, a careful exegesis of Isaiah 41 to 53 indicates that the servant cannot be national Israel. Careful exegesis of the entire book of Isaiah and the entire Old Testament indicates that the servant as a nation cannot be Israel. And any references to the servant as a nation cease by the end of the 48th chapter. And every reference thereafter to the servant, 49 and 50 and 52.13 to 53.12, is always to a singular servant, an individual. Number one, we know that the servant cannot be the nation of Israel as a whole because Israel was in exile because of its sin. Isaiah, the 50th chapter, the prophet says it explicitly, that, that you were sold into, into slavery, you were sold into exile because of your sins. The whole book of Isaiah is indicting the nation of Israel for its sin, and we know according to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel was obedient to the Lord, that Israel would be blessed and established in the land. If Israel was disobedient and sinful, Israel would be scattered and in exile, and the temple would be destroyed. So that's what happened, whereas the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is called righteous. He makes others righteous. He's not suffering for his own sins. He's suffering for the sins of the nation. Not only so, but Ezekiel 39 tells us that at the end of the age that the nations will say that Israel was in exile because of its sin. So the whole Jewish argument that Israel in exile is not suffering for its own sins, but the sins of the surrounding nations, is totally false. So for that reason, or for other reasons, there are many traditional Jewish interpreters that say, no, no, it's not the nation as a whole. And in fact, if you look if you, if you look at servant Israel as a whole, and I say beginning in verse 41, servant Israel as a whole is in bondage, in captivity, blind, deaf, dumb, whereas the servant individual is setting Israel free from captivity and bringing out those who are blind and deaf and dumb. So now we say, okay, maybe it's the righteous remnant. This would be a traditional Jewish argument. It's not the nation as a whole, because the nation as a whole is in exile because of sin. The nation as a whole is not righteous. The nation as a whole is suffering for its own sins. Therefore, it can't be referring to the nation as a whole. It's referring to the righteous remnant. You know, people like uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, who went into exile even though they were godly men, uh, they were suffering as the nation suffered. So they are not suffering for their sins. And when they're being beaten and oppressed by the nations, the righteous remnant is suffering for the sins of the nations. That's what Isaiah prophesied. The whole problem with that is it doesn't work. So what do you mean it doesn't work? Well, what does it say? By their wounds, by his wounds, there is healing for us. Allegedly, according to traditional interpretation, Isaiah 53 reflects the words of the kings of the nations. Who's believed our report? Who's believed what we've heard? And, and Israel, or the righteous remnant of Israel, we thought was suffering for its own sins. It's actually suffering for our sins 
and, and buy Israel's wounds will get. Well, when did that happen in history? God says plainly, for example, Jeremiah 30 and 31 and other passages, that, that when the nations mistreat Israel, that he will punish them and destroy them. Where is Assyria? Where is Babylon? They were punished and destroyed. What happened in Germany? A divided nation, a torn up nation after the Holocaust. God judges the nations that mistreat his people. They don't get healed by mistreating Israel. They get judged for mistreating Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel. Here, the suffering of the servant brings healing to those that smote. So it can't refer to the nation as a whole. It can't refer to the righteous remnant. It has to refer to an individual within the nation. And that is the fairest, clearest way to read it. And Frank, it's the most remarkable thing. We've seen it for decades. You sit down with a Jewish person and you say, could you read this chapter? They can start at 52.13 or they can just start at 53.1. Who do you think that's talking about? It's amazing how many Jewish people think they're reading from the New Testament. That's right. We've had Jewish people get angry at us as if we put it in there. It's like, well, there it is. Who's it talking about it? And, and, and the eyes are open. Many Jewish people have come to faith just by reading that chapter. In fact, if you go to chapter 14 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, a book I wrote with Dr. Norman Geiser, we recount the experience of uh, Dr. Barry Leventhal, who was a, a young Jewish man who played for the UCLA Rose Bowl team in, I think, 1966, and he actually came to faith after reading Isaiah chapter 53. He thought that Hal Lindsey, who was the crew a Campus Crusade for Christ representative at UCLA had had a trick Bible, Mike, to 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 to, yep. uh, to try and convince Barry that this prophecy was in the Old Testament when it really wasn't there, and he ultimately realized it was in the Torah. And uh, he went to his rabbi, and his rabbi said, it does appear to be talking about Jesus, but since we Jews don't believe in Jesus, he said, it can't be about Jesus. And Barry said to himself, I didn't know much about logic at that point, but that logic just didn't sound kosher to me. <laughs> he, he eventually became a Christian. Now, uh, for those of you that haven't read Isaiah chapter 53, you're probably going, what are these guys talking about? You might want to stop the podcast and go read it right now, and then come back and listen to the rest of this, because this is so profound but I do have a question about it, uh, uh, Dr. Brown. We're talking to Dr. Michael Brown, website realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com, go there. This does appear to be talking about an individual. It keeps talking about he, 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 but it is written in the past tense, yet Christ hadn't come for, uh, wouldn't come for 700 years. What do you say about that? Yeah, this is what's commonly called the prophetic perfect, that uh -huh. the prophets would speak of events as if they were already happening or were happening right as they were speaking. You know, they'd say, flee from the city, and, and, it, and it's not for many, many decades before the judgment's going to come. Or they'd look, they'd see the future and proclaim it as if it was already happening. So, again, it's called prophetic perfect. There's nothing unusual about that in, in the okay. Hebrew Scriptures. And, and really, that's not a major objection that Jews would raise, because they're saying this is a future confession that the nations will make about Israel at the end of the age, when Israel is exalted, they'll realize, oh man, we misjudged, we thought Israel was guilty, and we were the ones guilty. So even traditional Judaism looks at it as a future prophet. How could it be that they're saying, and verse 9 in Isaiah 53 says, no deceit was found in his mouth. Are they trying to say that Israel was sinless? Because that would refute basically the entire Old Testament. Now, what, what they would say is, first, that you have a, a righteous remnant, and this righteous remnant is not necessarily sinless, 
but they are godly. You know, for example, there's a conduct of Scripture that we're called to Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, oh, and, right. and a conduct okay. of speech, and this should just be normal for a godly or righteous person. There's no deceit, mm-hmm. we're not violent, we're okay. not saying we're perfectly sinless. And you could read Isaiah 53 as requiring that the servant is perfectly sinless, or you could read Isaiah 53 as saying that the, the, the servant was, was a highly righteous person. But again, the question is, how good did they have to be to take on the sins of the world? What made yeah. them different from everyone else? So when you read it in its fullness, obviously it's speaking of a sinless Messiah. But could, at the very least, he has to be a righteous one who makes others righteous with no deceit on his lips. That's Dr. Michael Brown. Mike, thanks so much. Sorry we're out of time. It's great having him on. we got to have him back. We could talk about this for hours. Go to realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com, and also go to crossexamine.org for more. See you next time, friends. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.